0: We made this.
1: Welcome everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black.
2: And I'm Sean Wilson.
1: And this week we're bringing a discussion of music from Terence Blanchard, Roque Banos, Bruce Hornsby and more. As we discuss on the eve of the release of his new film, The Five Bloods, amidst the cauldron of racial tensions and protests across America following the tragic murder of George Floyd, the music of the films of director Spike Lee. Now, Sean, this was this was a topic that you approached me about doing after I said, well, is there any way we can do something that sort of talks a little bit about what's going on in America right now in terms of black culture, while being mindful of the fact we're both, you know, very white men in our 30s <laughs> from the UK and not wanting to whitesplain, you know, as they say, anything. Um, What could we do to sort of tie into that? And we had a few different ideas. And then you said, well, actually, as luck would have it, Spike Lee has a new movie out this weekend. So it seems, or well, it'd be last weekend from when you guys are listening. So it it actually is timed quite well in terms of one of America's most important directors in terms of black culture and black history and, you know, race, uh, racial politics and all this kind of thing. Releasing a movie at in the middle of the, the most the most powerful and enormous racial protests since the nineteen sixties.
2: Yeah, I think because obviously, like you quite rightly said, two two white British blokes recording from their homes. There, there's you know we we would never sort of deem it necessary to say oh we understand um, the discrimination that a particular community face obviously there is no way we could ever truly understand that but I think by zeroing in on cinema and by zeroing in on cinema's ability to create empathy and to break down boundaries and to bring people together I think that that is that's an effective way of being able to understand what people of, of uh of different backgrounds uh and and different communities are going through i think roger ebert the the uh, the uh, late great film critic once called cinema uh, a machine for empathy and i can't think of a better description and i think um spike lee's movies are always profoundly empathetic and powered by a, a, a real sense of of, of righteous anger and uh, indignation and also a real passion as well. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really delightful to be able to talk about the music that's used in his films as well. Because I think sometimes that gets a little bit overlooked. And I think we've got some fantastic ones coming up on the show. Really looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Although I will make a confession. This is similar to last week where I was a bit all over the place with uh, <laughs> having seen some of the films. But I've seen, we're going to talk about nine different pieces of music from Spike Lee films. And I've seen two of the films
2: <laughs> involved
1: in the past. <laughs> yeah. So i hold my hand up and admit that, you know, I wanted to do this because I'm interested in learning. And it was interesting in going uh, to listen to a lot of the music, which is, you know, in the, on this podcast, principally going to be from Terence Blanchard who is kind of you know the the John Williams to Spike Lee Steven uh, Steven Spielberg you know if you want to look at a comparison in terms of the guy who he most often uses for his music but there are other people involved there are a few other composers he's worked with as well but I just found it really interesting and thinking about you know what this music means in terms of uh, yes admittedly films I haven't seen but many films I have heard of and I have knowledge of generally without actually going and watching them so in some senses, I mean, as always, Sean, sure, I'll defer to your greater knowledge than mine because you're you're the brains behind the operation here. I'm just the gobshite, <laughs> you know. Oh the
2: well, then then, but, we're, then we're in trouble. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> yeah, blind leading the blind, but uh, yeah. but you know, it, it's it is one of those things where I'll defer to a lot of your knowledge and I will learn stuff along the way. But it was it's been a great listening experience because I think that the the range of different styles of music and a lot of the different instrumentation used in a lot of these scores for Films that are in their own ways quite different while also, you know, keeping to, I guess, similar themes that Spike Lee explores over his movies is is a really interesting brew. I mean, what would you say like the general sort of tied in theme to Spike Lee's films and career is? generally
2: and with mean, if we're thinking in terms of music specifically because obviously that's what we're here to talk about I, I think that one of the one of the things i was really struck by going through listening to most if not all of these scores is how um symphonically and harmonically um, appealing they all are which is re- really really interesting i think it's 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 interesting given how the nature of how angular and edgy and angry and often violent spike lee's movies are by virtue of their subject matter i think what one of the things that comes through with the music in his films uh, the, the the accompanying orchestral uh, scores in particular is how they are um they cut through they cut through all of the the noise of, of racial injustice to deliver a very very humane very beautiful uh, accompaniment to what is happening on on the screen, and I um when Black Klansman came out a couple of years ago, I, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Terence Blanchard, uh, as you said, uh, one of Spike Lee's um primary collaborator in terms of uh, score, and he told me that uh, Spike Lee has a, a a profound love of the symphonic orchestra. He likes music that is very very fulsome, music that is in the foregrounds that um. Adds to the richness of the experience and i can't say how pleased i was to hear that and i think that definitely comes across through the music that we're going to be highlighting i mean we should point out as well that it's not just it's not just the the, the symphony it's also there are going to be there's a lot of emphasis on jazz and i think some of the most interesting intersection points for me are when that the the jazz ensemble meets that of the symphony orchestra. So you get the two styles often sort of mixing and colliding together, which you know one would imagine is the um you know, in some senses music that is rooted in the African American community mingling with the needs of uh, a score that captures the sort of profound emotional weight of what's going on. I think yeah, it's, there are there are there are definitely sort of themes running through this.
1: Yeah, and, and I think those those are aspects. I think you'll definitely pick out, you know, as we go through in terms of Spike Lee's music. And as we say, there has been a new Spike Lee film out this weekend, as we record, or last week, as you're listening. Um, and that's kind of where we're going to start. I think talking about about that score. What I will say beforehand, as always, is there will be a Spotify playlist on our show notes. So if you do have the means of listening to the playlist alongside listening to our podcast then go for it. If you I, I did think after I've said this a couple of times a lot of people listen to podcasts on the move and you can't really listen to music and a podcast at the same time and you might listen to it afterwards or beforehand in terms of music that is. But if you can do both at once go for it because I think it would be a nice accompaniment to uh, to what we're talking about and pretty much all of these scores, maybe bar one one, are on Spotify. So we will be able to put you know, a lot of this music out there for you to listen to and select from. Also, what I will say is that we are on iTunes if you haven't subscribed. So we'd really be grateful if you're enjoying the podcast and you're enjoying us coming back to talk about this stuff, you could get on iTunes and give us a ideally five-star rating a review. That'd be really useful to help us um, get a bit more known and attract more listeners to our ramblings about film music so uh, if you could do that we'd love you even more than we already do and me and sean love you a lot you know we love you. <laughs> it can't it can't be
2: <laughs> measured this love it just simply can't be measured <laughs> just make sure you listen to us
1: <laughs> yeah we, we, we've tried to measure it It doesn't work but yeah um <laughs> so yeah anyway um let's crack on and talk about Da five bloods which is the new film by spite lee And it's scored by Terence Blanchard, his regular collaborator, for the most part. And it stars, uh, amongst others, Delroy Lindo, uh, Clark Peters, Chadwick Boseman. And it's about four African-American Vietnam veterans who return to Vietnam in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader uh, and the promise of buried treasure. And I'm an idiot, Sean, because I had two choices last night. Uh, in terms of films to watch, I'm recording this on, the, on a Saturday morning, and, the, and this came onto Netflix on, on the Friday beforehand. And um, the choices were this: *The Five Bloods* on Netflix, or *Artemis Fowl* on Disney Plus. And oh, I, quote, I, 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 sus-
2: I suspect foul play here. Well, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes,
1: foul play. Or to quote the the Grail Knight in *Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade*, you have chosen poorly. <laughs> because i picked artemis foul up which was a terrible terrible decision for reasons i won't go into Uh, (laughs) uh except to say that realistically the only decent thing about that film is probably patrick doyle's score but that's an entirely different conversation we may have at an entirely different time but i should have picked the five the five blood sean as you did so, <laughs> A, is it a good film? And B, what did you think about the music?
2: It, for the most part, it is it is a good film. As is usual with Spike Lee, it's two and a half hours long and it probably could have had about 20, 30 minutes cut out of it. I think that... As, as a lot of people have said it's kind of a mixture of apocalypse now meets the treasure of sierra madre with um sounds bit of that. brilliant actually yeah i know doesn't that concept sound amazing <laughs> as well sounds amazing um, yeah with, with, it sounds really really good and with the um more than a dash of the 1990s film dead presidents which was made by the hughes brothers now, i've not seen very many comparisons to this but it, that that was that was directed by the Hughes brothers and scored by Danny Elfman. Actually, um, Danny Elfman doing a really interesting experimental score that's well worth seeking out. But the idea, in, in, I was thinking about this when I was watching The Five Bloods. I was thinking I can't think of very many other films apart from Dead Presidents that have focused on the African American experience in the Vietnam War. I thought this is quite it, it, within the context of The Five Bloods. That sound, that feels quite unique, and I was very 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 intriguing. Uh, concept and it, it, it is it is very much about how the movie begins with um as as with as a lot of Spike Lee movies fe- feature montages. This opens with a montage of footage that intercuts between footage of the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s with footage of um, African American soldiers um, being having been drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. And what the movie does, I think, very very pointedly, it is a Spike Lee movie after all. Is it shows how the the, the oppressed African American communities were basically co opted to oppress another society on the other side of the world. So you've got the oppressed oppressing further people at the behest of you know a, a phony American war, and you can you can get a sense of the the anger and the disillusionment immediately from this opening montage sequence. It's very very well edited and that theme plays right the way through the movie in which you quite rightly said you have these four um, African American Vietnam War veterans who they are they it, it's a moment of reckoning they go back to the country that defined their lives really against their will they they, they didn't they don't want to serve in the Vietnam War and one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is where you get one of the flashback sequences in which there is a radio broadcast um that apparently is based on a on a a real person hanoi Hannah. they are listening to um hanoi Hannah, and they hear that martin luther king has been um, assassinated in america they are in um, vietnam they are completely disempowered to do anything about this so the battle that they should be fighting in america they are unable to fight because they are over in vietnam fighting a phony war largely on behalf of, of white americans and that's one of the most powerful scenes in the film because it shows how these characters have been have been disempowered, and that is one of the, that's the, that kind of the crux of of the movie in a way. And um, the film moves between different aspect ratios, so what you have is um, the sort of anamorphic widescreen during the modern day sequences in which the older characters go back to Vietnam to find, as you said, their comrade and the gold. And then during the flashback scenes, the screen contracts and sort of narrows. And the image looks like it's been treated as well. So the flashback scenes are narrower, smaller, and they've got a kind of more grainy look to them to suit the the 1960s, uh, 70s setting. That's really impressive as well. And all of the various characters are dealing with the, the horrific legacy of what they've been through in various different ways. Delroy Lindo is brilliant. I mean, Delroy Lindo doesn't get anywhere near enough leading man roles. And one of the things I like about this film is the way it gives him and Clark Peters as well that they, they are they're at the forefront they're not hanging around in the background like they so often do stealing the show in other movies as side characters they are up front they are two of the leading men in it and they're great Delroy Lindo's character really never left the jungle he was so traumatized by it uh, that he he never really left it in a psychological sense and then they are then joined by his Grown-up son who wants in on the share of the gold, and then it becomes about you know Del Orlando's Lindo's very very fractious, very difficult relationship with his grown-up sons. That adds another interesting element to it. The Clark Peters character is kind of one sense is he's not just in it for for, for richness; he is in it because he wants to uh, you know make amends with the, with the um, memory of of it, of, the, of the late colleague that they left behind, played by Chadwick Boseman. So it's it's really it's really good. I think that. For me, it lost it about two-thirds of the way through. I think it, it's overextended, and I think that what the, the movie, I don't want to give anything away for those who haven't seen it, is mean, on Netflix, and it is, it is worth checking out in as much as it's a Spike Lee movie, and there are lots and lots of, lots of things to take away from it. it, it the, the movie basically turns into a kind of allegorical reflection of what was going on in Vietnam in the 1960s, so what was happening then is then sort of reflected back in the modern-day sequences, and there is the, a, a struggle ensues a violent struggle then ensues that's meant to have deliberate echoes of what happens with these characters in the past for that the the movie kind of fell off for me at that point and i thought when it when it was at its best is looking at the the intimacy between the the interplay between the characters looking at how they're variously dealing with the you know the appalling legacy of 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 the war in vietnam i thought that was really good i think the acting is brilliant and the score is just i mean i i think having listened to this particular score by terence blanchard and several of his other scores in preparation for this podcast i think he's now one of my new favorite film composers he's brilliant i i, I don't know what you whether you might agree with on this but i think that it's interesting that in the five bloods score he he puts the jazz stylistics to one side that 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 the, the sort of the that side of it is taken care of with needle drops like the film begins with marvin gaye Uh, inner city blues which obviously immediately sets a mood because as soon as you hear that you think okay i kind of know where i am in relation to the characters Um, but the score itself i think is more interested in reinforcing the militaristic adventurous aspect of the movie because it it, it is an adventure it's an adventure with socio-political societal overtones to it. it it is a b movie with um with very interesting things to say about race and and racial inequality and exploitation. But I think what Terence Blanchard has done is he's, in particular, he's latched onto that side of it through the use of the snare drums, through the use of, of, the, of the trumpet. I, I, I'm going to, you know, this won't surprise you. I was reminded a lot of Jerry Goldsmith <laughs> listening to it. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you think that as well?
1: Yeah, I did, yeah. And and a little bit of the kind of militaristic sort of scores that James Horner did for things like the Jack Ryan films, that yeah. kind of yeah. stuff definitely that that same sense of trying to place the music in in, a, a, in in a story yeah about a group of soldiers and about america you know it felt very a particularly american score in terms of that kind of deliberately militaristic music. I, I, I did enjoy it a lot. I found I found it to be in line as well with what I have listened to of Blanchard's scores for Spike Lee over the last week. And I've listened to a fair few, obviously, because we're talking about a few on this podcast. But yeah, it does do some some different things with it. Have to say, I I, I think that I'm really gonna dig the Five Bloods actually because it I, I, Apocalypse Now is one of my favourite movies. You know, and it, and if it's sort of if it has a little bit of that sort of B movie Almost inglorious bastard style, you know, adventure romp to it. And not in the same context as Tarantino. I know it's a very different kind of style. I'm sure, but I don't know. I think I think that kind of thing is going to appeal to me, maybe more than some of Spike Lee's films have done before. You know, because I, I like I say I haven't really seen much of what he's done, and it's not been a conscious choice of oh I, I won't watch Spike Lee films. I've just never really been drawn. To them, so you know, Defive Bloods might be weirdly my way in, actually, you know, in, into what I'm sure are, are better films to come
2: that, that's actually an excellent point i think that what you've done there is you've highlighted spike lee's ability to craft genre cinema that has things to say about the african american community in particular the way that he is able in this film into five bloods he's able to smuggle those themes in through the guise of like you said a, a, a sort of ripping b-movie uh, adventure almost you know m- one might think of things like you know like the dirty dozen and things like that yeah i, th- I think i think it is a laudable quality of of spike lee and I think the music, to, to go back to the music, it, it definitely plays into that. It plays up the, the heroism and the nobility of, uh, of the characters. And I think there's also, because the movie is set in Vietnam, it allows Terence Blanchard to touch on a different kind of music that he hasn't been able to do in spike lee's other movies because invariably spike lee's movies are set on the streets of of brooklyn this is the first movie that he's done that's set in um in vietnam and i looked this up because so there was there was a particular instrument that was used in the score that i thought was very very beautiful i've heard it in other other scores as well uh the erhu. this is a chinese um stringed um instrument which creates it's got an incredibly beautiful um and evocative sound and that that was interesting. That shows how Terence Blanchard can adapt his own sound for Spike Lee. The way that that sound has continued to evolve throughout all of the collaborations they've done, and they've now alighted on a new tone that I think is is very very beautiful, and it speaks of of the environment. And also, there is a with because because you haven't seen it, I don't want to give too much away. The um the Clark Peters character has a, a moment of reconciliation with um a woman called uh, Tien uh, uh, towards towards the beginning of the film, although this has ramifications all the way through the movie and the use of the, the, uh, who uh, the, the, the stringed instrument is, is really well done in that scene. It, it, it's it got a lot of sort of overtones of melancholy and regrets to it. And indeed there are some very, very beautiful moments throughout the score. There's some lovely string elegies, which, capture the the the, the strange tragedy of what these guys have gone through the fact that you know they are their psyches and their lives were compromised for the sake of uncle sam yeah, and that, that that appalling sense of exploitation and and waste and i think that blanchard's music plays up so i mean just, just i suppose one thing to say about the people who might be wondering who terence blanchard is because uh, I appreciate not everyone might know who he is. He's so born born in New Orleans in um, in 1962 and he is one of the the premier uh, jazz um, jazz artists in America. So he's uh, served in the likes of the the Lionel Hampton Orchestra. Uh he served as the artistic director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. He was named a visiting scholar at Berkeley School of College of Music. Um, so he's 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 a very very multifaceted musical artist he's in jazz. He's done symphony. He's um, he's staged opera. There's an opera that he staged called Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's a really really incredible music and and a lovely. I have to say a lovely person as well. There was a couple of interviews a couple of years ago that I um, interviewed him. A very very nice man. One of the things I would maybe as an entryway. For people seeking out his jazz works, in particular, is he staged a, um, a re-recording of Jerry Goldsmith's theme for Chinatown, which I spoke with him about. That's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. For anyone, anyone, because I know j- jazz. It's weird. It, jazz. The word jazz tends to alienate quite a lot of people. It's like oh, I don't like jazz. I don't, don't want to listen to jazz, but. I mean, jazz in film music has got a very, very long storied history, Go, probably going back to Alex North with The Streetcar Named Desire. That was the, 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 you know, the pivotal, that's the moment where jazz was basically born in film music. And I would suggest going to check out his his take on Scene for Chinatown. It's absolutely sublime.
1: Yeah, so many, so many times, you know, we, we talk about film composers and they have a jazz background or they've got some kind of involvement in that world. So, yeah, it's, it, it, there is a big connective tissue there. And, uh, yeah, you can definitely see it in, in Blanchard's work. We will return to Terence Blanchard later, more than once, because he plays a big part in, in the, the, the the eight uh, films we've chosen here and scores we're going to talk about, as opposed to we normally talk about five each, we're talking about four each today. So we're going to go back for the first one to... 1989 to probably the film that pretty much put Spike Lee on the map, which is Do the Right Thing, which he wrote and directed. And he's set in Brooklyn, as you say. You know, he sets a lot of his films there uh, over a hot summer's day where, you know, simmering racial tensions culminate in violence. And it's got a, you know, hell of a cast, you know. Danny Aiello, Ruby Dee, Ozzie Davis, John Turturro, Samuel L. Jackson, just loads and loads of people. Martin Lawrence in his film, debuts, And it, it's, you know, it's a well-known film. If there was one film I think that I need to really go and, and watch soon, it's this, <laughs> you know, in terms of Spike Lee's, Spike Lee's movies. But this one wasn't a Terence Blanchard uh, collaboration. This one was uh, with his father, Bill Lee, um, which is, you know, something I didn't realise um, in terms of at first... Because his father's a jazz musician, and he uh, composed and partially performed the score. And then, alongside that, there were there was a an actual soundtrack full of you know uh, songs of the of the day, R and B songs, and and things like that. Particularly, and rap and stuff like that. Particularly, "Fight the Power" by Public Enemy, which is a famous you know song from the late '80s, which which you know did really well in the in the Billboard charts and such. But I I I really liked this. I thought it was, I thought it was a, it definitely different from from a lot of the stuff he does with Blanchard. But it was very upbeat, and I I, I think it really sort of got the feeling of that hot summer's New York neighbourhood. And and it, given I haven't seen the film, I haven't I can't put it into that context. But I definitely got that vibe listening to this score.
2: Yeah, well, I, I kicked myself because I totally didn't make the connection that Bill Lee would have been related to Spike Lee until I actually looked it up as part of the, the preparation for this podcast. I was like, "Oh, he's Spike Lee's dad." I, I never, never made that connection.
1: And he's still going. He's early nineties. Yeah. He's still, he's still with us, which is great.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I was, I was looking up. Apparently, um, they haven't collaborated since the early nineteen nineties because they've had a bit of a, a, bit of a falling out, which is a shame because I think that. Um, yeah do the right I thought the do the right thing score was brilliant really really good probably one of the best jazz scores i've ever heard it's and the interesting thing is the film is magnificent and i think the film this is the film to watch if you want to broach spike lee movies for the first time this is probably one of if not his his most accessible movie saying that it is it is funny it is also very very uncomfortable and very upsetting when it when it needs to be as in in order to make the point but I was tr- I was trying to actually remember the the application of the score in context in the film, and I don't really remember the score standing out in the film all that much. Which is we've talked about before. That's surely a sign that the score's worked, is not it? If if it, if if it didn't call so much attention to itself that it was distracting, then it then it must have been a good score. Clearly, the use I mean, the, the fight the power is, is is the unofficial anthem of the film. Because you have the Radio Rahim character play the uh, Bill Nunn's character who walks around with his um, with his boombox like, blasting it out, and essentially um, this this builds to a, a very very antagonistic moment that all pivots around Sal's pizzeria, Sal played by da- Danny Aiello. The the, the heat. And the incessant thumping volume of the music builds this incredibly fractious overwrought finale in which that song is kind of is, is at the center of it. So it's probably no wonder that I don't really remember the score itself in the background. I think because it is a, a dialogue driven movie, it's visually very, very vibrant. You You can almost smell... You can smell the street. It's so tactile and so well done. You can feel the kind of sweat and broiling like anger in, in amidst all these various different ethnic communities in this small area. But I think what the score does in the film, it, it just augments the dialogue probably just enough in a subtle way. But listening to it on its own, I was like, wow, this is absolutely, this is delightful. It's so, it's such a joy to listen to. And to go just to go back to the point that I made earlier, which is that, Spike Lee is able to conjure very, very listenable scores for his films. That the, Although there are notes of darkness, the scores don't often go into kind of avant-garde, off-the-peg territory. I think in this, there is... I mean, it's, I should point out that on the album, there's Branford Marsalis, the, the saxophonist, is, is on this, and he's worked on many, many other film scores, including Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Russia House, which is another really fabulous jazz score it's just it's really really beautiful I like the way it takes that intimate ensemble and just puts it through many many different variations there is a central theme for the character that Spike Lee himself plays in the film Mookie and that that kind of go that that is treated to many many different variations through the piano through the trumpets through the saxophone and it it, it, I think it's just a delight it's just lovely easy listening while also capturing the flavor of the movie which is no mean feat
1: yeah I, and like I say, I haven't seen the film, so I can't put it into that context. But I, I it's, it's, if anything, it's made me want to go and watch the film even more. So, you know, it works on that basis. And it was a great listen outside of the movie. So, yeah, re- really, really good. And different to some of the other stuff we're going to talk about, but, you know, within the, the, the greater context of Spike Lee's films, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, I suppose. The next one is a, of a different tempo, because you went for 25th Hour, which was from 2002 starring Edward Norton as a guy who is about to go to prison for drugs for seven years and he spends his last, this is all about his last 24 hours. So again, it's set over a day, um, one particular day in New York and... It's it's not a it's not a film you know it's interesting because he spitefully flits between different kind of genres and different kind of stories and different kind of characters and and it's not he doesn't always seem to make films that are about black culture all the time you know he does he's he's as interested in like New York it seems as someone like Martin Scorsese is and setting a lot of his films in these places and this one's interesting because it's it was based on a book. By uh, David Benioff, who one of the co writers of Game of Thrones latterly, after this. And Spike Lee was interested th- because of a monologue that Benioff wrote, wrote in the book called The Fuck Monologue, <laughs> 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 which was where the, the lead character of Monty ranted against the five boroughs of New York. And um, Benioff was thinking about getting rid of it, but Spike Lee said, you know, keep it in, in terms of the actual script. And Disney didn't want him to film it, but in typical Spike Lee fashion, he went, "Fuck you! I'm going to film it anyway." <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting about how he approached this, and this is a, 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 a one of the Terence Blanchard scores, and it's definitely very different from Do the Right Thing. It's, it's, I suppose it's more, it's more dour in some senses. I don't mean that in a bad way. I thought this was a really good score that you've chosen. And there was some definite ethnic vibes in terms of maybe some Russian instrumentation in there as well, which or, or it, it, it's it was it was a strange mixture because there's, there's a little bit of jazz and everything like that. And I thought, again, this is a film I haven't seen, much as I've done a little bit of reading around it, but. It's a, it's an interesting brew, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's it's more it's more of a conventional um drama symphonic score than than Do the Right Thing was. And Bill Lee's music on that was was a, a jazz, a jazz album. This is much more a, a, a kind of dramatic construct. And I think it's 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 showcases Terence Blanchard's remarkable gift for um beauty and also how he is very chameleonic, how like you say, Spike Lee is very chameleonic and terence blanchard follows suit and yeah the, the idea is i mean this was one of the first post 9-11 new york movies and it's generally held up to be one of if not the greatest in in that in that area in terms of the, the the anguish and the torment that new Yorkers felt in the wake of 9-11 is kind of channeled into this movie and i think you can definitely hear that through the music through the low the low drums and the low strings there is a kind of brooding sadness to it but there are also moments of incredible elegiac beauty and the opening track in particular is very very beautiful with with the high register strings which is very very lovely and i think what the what terence blanchard does with this score he paints light and shade very very well and i think you're right yeah the um i mean the the, it goes from like jazzy piano to almost like a kind of middle eastern influence to what sound like bagpipes and then back it all all not 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 Sort of trowled on, just subtle enough because Terence Blanchard is, as a, need it not be said, he's a fabulous composer and he doesn't overdo things. There's just enough texture to to suggest the various ethnic mixtures of New York who you know one might imagine are in some ways at each other's throats in in the film. But then you know, as you you pointed out, that monologue there at the end of that monologue edward norton's character throws it back on himself and sort of says well I, i've just ranted for five minutes at various communities i'm no better than any of them it's so th- there is that lovely sense of irony i think what terence blanchard does very well in his scores for Spike lee's films is he gets irony that and i i think one needs to credit lee for this as well what you often get as with the opening sequence of the five bloods which as i said begins with that that mon that montage sequence that intercuts between uh, the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, in that opening sequence of the Five Bloods, the music strikes what appears to be a kind of victorious noble register, which when you what see what's what what happens, when you see the nature of that montage, you think, oh, okay, it's kind of ironically playing up the so called heroism of the Vietnam War when in fact the movie is going to show us what, what that war actually did to the African American community. So again, I think that and I think the you know just the the irony of Blanchard's works for Lee are, are it's it's very, very important. I mean we'll get onto this when we talk about um Black Klansmen as well, which which is another another um fabulous score. But I think there is yeah. There is tongue-in-cheek humour in the music that he does for Spike Lee, definitely.
1: Yeah, they're, they're, I, th- I think you're right, yeah. And and he's he's not afraid to go into some of those directions, definitely, yeah. Um, I, but I, like I say, I really did enjoy this, and I, I'm very intrigued about the film as well, so it is one I need to go and, and check out. My second one, I have seen the film. Yay! <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
1: and this is... And the irony is, the, of, of the two films I've seen, this is... This might be a contender for Spike Lee's worst movie. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> this next one is his remake of Old Boy, um, in, w- in which there there isn't a score by either Bill Lee or um, Terence Blanchard. This is from Roque Banos, this score. And obviously, I mean, this, this this was a bit of a contentious project anyway, and it's a bit of a bizarre like choice for Spike Lee, I think, because it's based on the... Uh, original Park Chan-wook 2003 South Korean movie, which is, I mean, th- an, an absolutely brilliant fucked up <laughs> film in so yeah. many ways. But it's a masterpiece. That is uh, based uh, based on a, an original sort of Japanese manga, and, and, and like like a lot of South Korean films, it, it really didn't need a remake in in the US. You know, and then this one starred Josh Brolin in, and, and you know, good cast. You know, Elizabeth Olsen. Samuel L. Jackson, and it's it's essentially about this guy who wakes up in a room, and uh, he's he's been in there for he's basically in there for twenty years. He's kidnapped. He, he's trapped in this room for twenty years, um, and by his captors, uh, and he finds out his wife has has been raped and murdered, and that he's the prime suspect. And he trains. He spends twenty years in this room, gets into shape and then with, with, intending to get out and get revenge on the people who killed his family. And I'm un, I, I'm underselling the original, and I, I'm sure you've seen the original, Sean, but I'm underselling the, the concept of this because it's way better and way more twisted than I'm giving it credit for. But certainly the Park Chan-wook version. But this, the, the remake is rubbish. Like, <laughs> it, really, it really, and I hate to say that about Spike Lee, but it is, it's rubbish. And I think... The, the, the score itself by rocky Banos is fine, you know, it's quite um, serious and, you know, uh, in, intense in many ways, and it's okay, and rocky Banos is, is, is not, isn't a bad composer, you know, he's not done anything particularly that's made me sit up and go, wow, and you may see that differently, but it, it, it just felt like I don't understand why this film, and I suppose this score even really exists, Sean, to be honest,
2: I mean, I should confess, I haven't seen Spike Lee's take on Old Boy deliberately because oh. I I I cherish the South Korean one so much. Because it, yeah, it's just, don't bother. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a weirdly anonymous project for Spike Lee to take on. I don't really know why why he would have he would have done it. Um, yeah, the, the 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 South Korean original is very extreme, but it's it has a real satirical sense of purpose to it. It's almost like it's was well, a tragedy, and. It builds yeah. this ecstatically horrifying finale oh where god. you're like, you're like, blimey, this is really. Oh annoying. my god,
1: it's um, it's it uh, we can't give it away if you haven't seen it, but Jesus, you will go. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's really horrible,
2: I, I, really I, horrible. I, I can't imagine that Spike Lee was able to attain that same feeling in the remake, right? No, I, I, he can't.
1: I, no, it's it's not. You know, it's it's again, it's a very similar sort of. You know, plot in terms of, uh, you know, what what he does, but it doesn't nearly have the same impact and power and horror of what you get at the end of the original, which it, which is always the case, isn't it? You know, whenever you get a remake, you know, uh, uh, but you ex- you'd almost expect a remake to, for under someone like Spike Lee to do something different, and it really it doesn't. Like it's it's such a banal take on what was a really really great original film. It's, and it's really strange.
2: Yeah, I mean having having not seen Lee's version of it um, and having listened to Rock Vanos's score in isolation, I thought I had to say out of all the ones, all the scores that we've that we're talking about today, I thought this was this was the dullest and it kinda of didn't really have any any defining textures or features to it, and I can only imagine that's because the film is pretty dull and pretty uninspired as well, and maybe it didn't allow for that kind of character to come through in the music like Spike Lee's other films do. I mean, Rock Banos, if anyone... His best score is probably for the remake of Evil Dead, uh, the Freddy Alvarez movie, which is a really good, like, rip-roaring gothic score. That's that's great. It reminds me a lot of uh, Christopher Young's work for things like Hellraiser and and things. But um, in terms of this... Yeah, it's just it just kind of noodles around in the in the kind of lower registers. It throws in a few like electronic little pulses every now and then which just sounded like off cuts from the Bourne movies. It's a, a, you know, budget of the scores that were done by John Powell, which was so great. Um yeah, I can I couldn't really think of anything to say about it. I couldn't really pick out any any discernible themes. I couldn't pick out any way that it was communicating the narrative of what was going on um again it's difficult for me well having not seen the spike lee movie but i have seen the park chan wook movie so i can kind of imagine ironically how the rock banos music would mirror the narrative of of, of the movie because i have seen the park chan wook one and apparently the, the lee version is very slavish to it but just doesn't get the tone yeah. of it
1: no that's exactly what it is yeah it's, it's very very similar but it it just it doesn't trans it doesn't translate properly you know it it, it just doesn't really work and it was a Massive bomb. I mean, it cost. It was cheap to make, really, in comparison. It was only thirty million, but it made like less than five. Like it was an absolute bomb. And I, th- I think it's because it's hard to almost market what is a very, very dark and intense story anyway. And you know, when you couple that with the fact that a lot of people are going to go, oh, why, why would you remake Old Boy? Like that's it's. It is very, very, very particular to the. The the where when and where it was made. It's just and it's just a really bad idea. And the reason I the reason I included this one is because I wanted us to try and get you know what the rare instances where Lee doesn't work with Terence Blanchard because he mo- he mostly does and this is his only collaboration with Banos and it makes me wonder was was Blanchard unavailable? Did he not want to do it? Did was it a studio thing? Did they say oh no we want somebody else on this? You know I always wonder that why why did he and this is 2013, 2012, 2013, when this was being made, I wonder what the reason was that Blanchard wasn't on this project.
2: Yeah, I do wonder whether maybe it's because, maybe because of the nature of the storyline, maybe the nature, Lee felt the nature of the storyline called for a different composer. I don't know why he would have chosen Banos particularly. Uh, I haven't read any stories about the the, you know, the, the construction of the, the music on on this particular film but yeah I I have to say I I felt that of all the scores we're talking about today I thought this was a disappointment and I thought even though the the, even though I was aware of the poor critical reputation of the old boy remake I was kind of hoping well hopefully the music will have something to offer in isolation hopefully it will communicate something about the film I haven't seen I have to say I don't think it did and it's a shame because, yeah, nah. <laughs> this composer has done good work elsewhere and it, it's unusual for Lee not to elicit good film music because he's got a fantastic understanding of film music. As we've already demonstrated through the, the preceding 40 minutes of this podcast, Lee understands film music really well. He he favours it, he foregrounds it, he doesn't hide it. Uh, he he likes themes, he likes various instrumental textures, he likes jazz, he likes symphonic music and this. So I just thought... Just, didn't didn't really didn't really do anything for me.
1: No, no, it was yeah, fairly forgettable. And like like the movie, a score that isn't forgettable is your second choice, which is to a film that I should have seen. I should have seen this, Sean. And I've meant I've I've come close to watching it and putting it on. And I've said, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this. I'm gonna watch this tonight. And it's just it's just eluded me. So this is one I fully intend to watch. Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Which is from 2018, very recent. His previous film before The Five Bloods*, uh, which is stars uh, John David Washington, who will so- soon be in *Tenet*, which is coming up. You know, headlining that uh, as uh, the first um, African American detective in 1970s Colorado Springs, um, who. Uh, sets out to infiltrate and expose the local Ku Klux Klan chapter. So this is deep in the middle of like you know racial politics. This this film and this was like beloved this film by you know by so many people. It's six nominations at the at the Oscars, um, one for best best uh, adapted screenplay, which uh, you know was partly won by Spike Lee there, and um, lots and lots and lots of love for this film. And I have to say. Of all the scores that we're talking about today, this is this is my favourite. This is by Terence Blanchard again. And I thought this was wonderful. I thought this is such a lyrical, melodious, strangely upbeat kind of piece of Americana that I suppose in some ways plays off a little bit of what he was doing on Malcolm X, which we'll talk about later. But it really sort of it's quite I found it quite rousing, this score. And almost. And, may, and maybe you, you can you can fill this in, Sean, a little bit because you've—I'm sure you've seen Black Klansman. Um so you know because you picked it. But I feel like it's maybe tonally suggesting the film isn't quite what people expect, which is what I've always thought about Black Klansman—that it might not be what not be a film that you go into and you get quite what you thought you get.
2: Well, I mean, it, it is a Spike Lee movie, and it, it does it. it, it um, it does revel in a sense of un- unpredictability and sort of confrontation or stylistic choice. I mean, Spike Lee isn't backwards and coming forwards in terms of putting something right in your face and either you know making you like wince in horror or making you laugh uncomfortably. The um, Black Klansman does both in equal measure. It's a really, really terrific film, and yeah, it, it was it was Spike Lee's comeback film after probably a few years of just meandering non-projects like Old Boy. Um, th- this kind of came roaring back it's like the, here's, here's the Spike Lee that, that we know or, and that we like and yeah I think the um, the score is, is brilliant I, I'd completely forgotten that Terence Blanchard actually got his first Oscar nomination for this he was one, one of the um, recipients although he didn't win it's it, it's a score of empowerment. It it, it 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 is an empowering, in spite of what the you know what the title implies and what the the very very provocative um, poster implies. It it is it is meant to be an empowering story, which again goes into that. It, it's there is a sense of irony going through um, the score. The idea of um, the, the the brilliance of the film is that Sir Ron Stallworth, played by John David Washington, rings up the ku klux klan and pretends to be a, a white person pretends to be a white supremacist on the phone which then compel compels adam driver as his partner to go and pose as the other half of him in in, in person so <laughs> you've got so so you got a sort of black th- pretending good. to be p- black pretending to be white uh so you have these this kind of racial duality going on which is played for humor and horror in equal measure but it, but it, it's an empower it's an it's it's a movie that basically delivers a huge fuck you to the clan in in a very kind of brash, uh, very brash, very full on kind of way, and I think that um, Blanchard's score definitely plays off that. There is um, listening to it, to it again in isolation, I could remember there's there's the central theme for Ron himself, which I could remember weaving its way through the through the movie, which has got this kind of like sort of seventies like funk style to it. Uh, it's got a swagger to it. And it's basically, you know, you mentioned Django Unchained earlier. Like in Django Unchained, Jamie Foxx's title character takes on the institution of slavery and blows it to the ground. In this, you have um, it's John David Washington's character coming in. And literally tearing up the rule book, not only by becoming the first African American detective in the Colorado Springs Police Department, but also by having the audacity to actually ring ring the clan up and play and play them at their own game. And I think that the 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 the, the heroism that's inherent in the music is very very important to that. Again, you've got this kind of funky swaggering motif for um for um, John David Washington's central character, yeah, you know, and it's that sort of gains in stature as the, as the score goes on, that's that theme becomes kind of bigger and more grandiose as the nature of his purposes, crusade, whatever you want to call it becomes more and more apparent. And yeah, I, I think, I think it's terrific. I do. I do actually the, the use the word melodious. there; it is very melodious. And again, one of the important things with film music is to listen to it in isolation because you often pick out nuances that you might miss in the film and the emphasis on the woodwind arrangements in, in the score is very beautiful. And it does have a, a, a lyricism to it that again, one might not expect given the nature of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. I think that what they, what they are doing is they are definitely playing the, the, what Lee and Blanchard are doing. They are sort of playing off that sense of delicacy against the, you know, the, the rate, the horror of the racial injustice that the movie is, is presenting. But again, it it also, it is also a very very ironic score the film begins with by basically showing how um uh racism has become systemic in uh pop culture the movie begins by invoking gone with the wind which is obviously that's now got into a lot of trouble because i think it's been removed from is it hbo max or, H- or-
1: hbo max yeah in the yeah briefly until there is cultural context added apparently that's that's what they're saying then they're going to put it back on with the racial context in place in terms of information
2: Ah, uh, okay fair enough well, what 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 black Plans does is it, it opens by showing how um gone with the wind perpetuates a certain image of of um of african-americans um african-american people and the music in that scene again Is very beautiful, but it's beautiful with a sense of making you very, very uncomfortable. In a sense of right, okay, the the music is is is, has kind of got a cognitive dissonance with what I'm looking at, and then we then go into an opening black and white sequence with Alec Baldwin as as a white supremacist who is addressing the camera directly. He's talking directly to us again. This is a very spiky things, a lot of uh, subjective camera work. And the music, again, sort of builds in this sense of almost like almost nobility. But it's obviously it's not meant it sounds noble, but it's meant to be playing up the the hideousness of the Alec Baldwin uh, character who is apparently fighting for the white cause. And there's a lot of that throughout the Black Klansman score. And it it works very, very well with the humorous tone of the movie. Clearly, there are the movie also has, as with all Spike Lee movies, it has a serious intention and I think that as we get further and further into the film and the 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 actions of the, of the clan need to be addressed and intercepted and quashed, you get much more violent textures again through the snare drums, through the, the, the timpani, and I think that is important as well. The the score also wants to make a serious point through the various textures that it deploys. But yeah, I it's 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 re- again, the word is listenable. It's very very easy to listen to, which is remarkable given that the film is composed of so many like jagged edges, and it, it really makes you go oh! But there are, there are several moments that make you laugh, or it make you oh that made me wince like like, like that. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a really really good combination of film and music.
1: I'm excited. I'm excited to get to it. I am going to watch that. I am going to watch that soon because it's one that I should have done already. Um, so yeah yeah, cool, brilliant, good choice. My next choice, again, is a film I haven't seen, shocker. But this one is from one of Spike Lee's lesser known recent films, I suppose. This is Red Hook Summer from 2012, which he co-wrote and directed. He described it as the sixth film in what he calls his Chronicles of Brooklyn series. So that's following uh, his first major film, which was She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing, as you mentioned Crooklyn, Clockers, He Got Game, all of which sort of are set within the same, not necessarily like a Spike Lee shared universe or anything, but the same kind of style and context and place. And you, this is all about a, uh, a a young boy who is sent to live with his preacher grandfather in uh, Red Hook, Brooklyn, and then it gets into uh, quite dark territory, I think, in terms of accusations about sexual molestation in in the church, which was covered up, and it goes. It seems to go in, going to into some into some serious subject matter, but the score is not again not by Terence Blanchard. This one's by Bruce Hornsby, who is a a, a singer songwriter and pianist. And this there there are vocals. There are there is some lovely lyrical uh, vocals from uh, and songs from Judith Hill um, and John Batiste on organ music. But a lot of this is piano and pretty and 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 he's. Quite beautiful, actually. I thought. I thought this was. I mean, it's very. It's different from. From again, different from a lot of the stuff we've talked about previously. But Hornsby has a lot of, of background in everything from classical jazz, again, bluegrass, folk, gospel, and it's you can you can hear that in a lot of his in a lot of his his work in this. And it, it, you know, it starts with a very particular piece of piano music, and then just draws you in and builds. And I, I just thought. I thought it was just a beautiful piece of work and and, and if Black Klansman is my favourite score I'd I to be honest I'd put this as my second favourite in terms of the ones we've listened to today I, I loved it and I'm interested that again he used Hornsby because he wanted a particularly different sound to this film
2: I thought. I haven't seen this film and I'm not particularly familiar with Bruce Hornsby's work either in the films of Spike Lee or away from it. And I thought this was probably the most beautiful score of the lot. I thought it was absolutely enchanting from from start to finish. And I think, yeah, but I think it's pretty much all composed for piano, isn't it? There's a little bit of gospel choir towards the end of it, but it's all, I don't really remember hearing any other instruments in it. And the amount of variety that Bruce Hornsby manages to ring out of this jazzy piano ensemble is incredibly deeply felt and incredibly beautiful. I can only imagine that was a deliberate stylistic choice because it's often alleged that the, the piano, because the piano is often located in a domestic environment, the piano has a sense of intimacy and warmth to it I imagine given what you've just said about the story I imagine that's how the you know the, the the nature of the instrument and the nature of the story kind of match up uh the idea of the the kid coming to Brooklyn as you said to um to start a new life so it's obviously about families it's about um it's it's about probably growing up and things so that to, to use a piano in that sense would would make sense I would have thought again I hadn't seen the film I thought it was absolutely absolutely lovely and I the, the translation of the mate of the themes there's there appear to be several themes going through it there's there's, there's a hymn that, that's attributed to it that, um is is lovely and is then translated into a gospel variation on the end which again plays right into the heart of the communities that Spike Lee focuses on so much uh, yeah I thought this was really really nice this wouldn't have been a score that I ever would have sought out I'm I'm curious to now see the film to understand how the music works in the context of the film. By all accounts it's not one of Spike Lee's better films looking up the reviews of it. Although it does have Clark Peters in it again. So uh, yeah, I, I absolutely wonderful. I'm I really thanks thanks for drawing my attention to this because I never would have listened to it otherwise.
1: Yeah, well again it was based on my attempts to to not make this completely Terence Blanchard and sort of and, and investigate other corners of of music that he uses but yeah I'm really pleased that that I found this because it's 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 lovely and whether the film doesn't match up to it or not it was it was a great listen and I think we'll pick out a few key pieces of piano for you to listen to on the playlist because I think it's yeah this is one to this one to check out um your next choice is a, is another uh, the, the other film I have seen <laughs> which
2: is um
1: 2006's Inside Man uh, which is a, a much more of a big sort of blockbuster Spike Lee kind of film, I guess. You know, a heist thriller, centering on an elaborate sort of bank heist on Wall Street over... Again, a tw- he likes his 24 hours,
2: Spike Yeah, he, Lee. Does. Again, yeah a, he does, yeah, he does. period.
1: <laughs> 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 and uh, he likes the condensed time frame, definitely. And this is uh, sees him reunite with uh, Denzel Washington uh, in, in the main role, but uh, as the hostage negotiator. And then you've got Clive Owen, as the mastermind behind the heist, and uh, Jodie Foster as a, as a power broker in Manhattan, and you know Christopher Plummer, and and you know really really big cast, Willem Dafoe, Chiwetel Ejiofor, you know big big blockbuster kind of film. This and I uh, and again this is Terrence Blanchard, and this was I think his he, he score sort of reflects the the more action sort of stylistics of this. You know it, it is it's it, it, I really liked it. I thought it was a great score. But it's it's a lot more up tempo in terms of in terms of that heist action feeling, I, I thought, and different a different kind of structure to it than some of his other pieces we've heard today.
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely the most conventional score that Blanchard has done for um, for Lee, which makes sense given the nature of the of the movie. Obviously, it's a heist movie. It, it, it's a genre movie. And therefore, there are certain conventions that the movie has to obey more so than many other Spike Lee movies. This film is probably defined by certain conventions and tropes and cliches, if you want to say. I'm not, I don't say that as a bad thing because I think Inside Man's a really terrific film. Um, And yeah, I think that uh, looking up the score here, just looking it up, is performed by the Hollywood Studio Symphony. So obviously one of the preeminent film orchestras in the world. So they clearly put a lot of investment into ensuring this score was big and bold and dramatic and played by, you know, some of the best musicians around. And yeah, I think it actually reminded me a lot of the work of Howard Shaw in a lot of places. It's the sort of thing I could imagine Howard Shaw maybe doing in his pre-Lord of the Rings days. Um, Mm. There is... Mm. um, did you think that there's like kind of, sort of, kind of, sense of stuff of, yeah yeah panic room seven although it's not quite as dark as the score for seven but i think there are overtones but just that sense of simmering tension in it um interspersed with which are occasional sort of jazzy interludes or, or bluesy interludes you have the, the the theme for um for denzel washington's character which again blanchard is very good at this he's very good at empowering the central African American character through the music, he he'll use like certain stylistic sort of conventions, which will tell you about the nature of of a particular character in a, in a Spike Lee film. And I think, in intermixed with that, you have a lot of um, orchestral violence again, with a lot of um, timpani and tense strings. But it, once more, it's not hard to listen to. It's it's very very easy to pick apart the themes and the construction of the score it, it, it has a clear narrative from start to finish uh, which are the kind of scores I like you know, regardless of whether they're challenging or not I like scores to have a narrative a, a clear start point end point how does the score begin with one theme how does it adapt that theme or themes and then resolve them at the end I think that as with all of Blanchard's scores for Lee it does that brilliantly uh, yeah really you know, a more conventional score but a great one
1: yeah I, I definitely I mean it it's and I you know I I didn't love the film, spiteley Lee has described it as his most successful movie, and I think in terms of uh, in terms of box office, I think that's that's probably the case. It did yeah, nearly two hundred million at the box office on a budget of forty five, so it's, it's a, it was a successful movie, and I think it's probably quite well remembered by people. But I didn't I didn't think it was a ama- an amazing film, but I yeah I, I the score did I I did find it an enjoyable listen, definitely out, outside of outside of the movie, even if it is a bit action. Yeah, conventional in that sense. Did you know there was a sequel to Inside Man, Sean? Was there? Really? Uh, <laughs> that came out. He came joking? out in... Oh, no, I'm not joking. It, there was originally supposed to be a sequel You know, made by Spike Lee, and they they, they nearly got it together, and, and the funding fell down, and it's not happening. But there was a direct-to-video sequel uh, oh my <laughs> that God. came out in 2019... Um, yeah, which is uh, stars directed by uh, M J Bassett, um, starring Amy Amin, Rhea Seahorn, and Roxanne McKay. So it's not quite
2: the star. It's not, cast. It's not Denzel Washington or Chiwetel Ejiofor or Clive Owen, <laughs> <laughs> is it? But never no,
1: <laughs> but it's the same characters. It's the same characters. But they're playing the same uh, characters or, or similar characters, uh, pretty much. I think so. Or they're similar characters um
2: it it just oh my god you gotta
1: love the old director video well it's not even director video anymore because well i suppose it still is but that's an old term now isn't it i suppose it's director
2: streaming streaming, yeah or or director vod yeah 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 yeah
1: (laughs) you know it's bless god bless uh, mind you, it's probably better than Artemis Fowl, but there you go. Um,
2: I'm, I'm going I'm to have different... to see this and see how bad it is. Oh.
1: Oh. Thing is, right, and not to get off the t- topic here, but it's not even, it's not Cats. Like, it's not wincing, juicingly, shockingly terrible. It's just really <laughs> boring. Like, and, and, and I, I always say, right, if you're going to watch, I mean, for, my God, don't, If you if people haven't seen Cats, that really isn't one of those, it's so bad, you must watch it. It's just so bad. Don't ever watch it. But there are lots of films <laughs> that are like... Trust me on that one. But there are lots of films where you go, oh, it's bad, but I've got to watch it. I always think the boring ones are the ones to avoid because yeah. there's nothing there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, an Artemis Fowl is one of them. It's just boring. So...
2: at the very very least with cats with cats it's so bad that it'll invoke a reaction whereas artemis sounds (laughs) kind of sounds like it would just be met with a shrug well that was a waste of two hours of my life wasn't it so yeah basically (laughs) Uh, you know the the only bit that will raise an
1: eyebrow is when judy dench comes on screen and you'll see what i mean okay yikes yikes that poor woman she deserves better
2: what what Judy Dench has given a yikes performance? That's never happened.
1: Uh, it's oh. it's more that the yikes is more that like what what <laughs> Judy Dench has to sort of look like and sound like oh, more than no. necessarily. She you know she's never bad as, as an actress, but just ju- just yeah, just go and watch those scenes, Sean. Forget <laughs> the rest. Just yeah, go and watch the scenes bits. with with Judy Dench as the commander of. A pixie sort of secret service, basically. And then you'll see what I mean. Um, <laughs> oh my yes, God. I did say a pixie, maybe a fairy, secret service. Yes, I did say that. Um, oh, my anyway. God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to Spike Lee, because that's what we're yeah. here to talk about. My last choice is um, probably, Sp- probably Spike Lee's most famous movie, which is Malcolm X from 1992 one of his earliest and i mean this again is a film i've not seen but i really want to because i love i'm i love american politics i really particularly american politics of the 1960s and this is all about this is one of the one of the great sort of american biopics denzel washington as malcolm x it's over three hours long it's an epic and this is i think his first collaboration with terence blanchard or maybe his second It's, it's it's one of the early ones and this is this is a sweeping epic of a score isn't it really? I mean this 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 really covers all kinds of territory. You know, in in another world it could have been it could have been a score for like an Oliver Stone movie this because it's it is like incredibly tied in I think with that black american black you know american history experience.
2: Yeah, I think sweeping is exactly the right the right word. I mean certainly when you have um a, 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 a person of the stature, albeit controversial stature, of, of of Malcolm X. Yeah, I think that there is so much material for a composer to draw on. And there is there is so much potential to paint with these incredible broad strokes um big, bold um, musical uh, colors and, and tones. And yeah, I think it's it's right. I think that Terence Blanchard, this was the first full score that Terence Blanchard had done on his own for Spike Lee. He had contributed to early films, I think, like No Better Blues. I think he had contributed music, but this was the first time he'd actually gone solo on a Lee movie. And wow, what, um, what a start for their partnership, I think that the, the um, once again, the ability to, to ensure that everything remains harmonious and melodic, everything is led by clear themes that range from these beautifully yearning strings, which obviously capture the, the, the tragedy of Malcolm X's curtailed life and the and various other aspects as well. But then, Obviously, the the film traces him for it's a fantastic film. I need I barely needs me to tell you that it's I mean, possibly Denzel Washington's best performance. Almost certainly Denzel Washington's best collaboration with Spike Lee. But obviously, Malcolm X. It traces him from his time in prison to his conversion to Islam, and then he he is then he then becomes this very very prominent um, political figure on on behalf of the African American community, and the the the, mu- the music gets that. That the strings, in particular, get sort of propel you forwards on this incredibly emotional journey. But during the scenes, particularly later on, when he he starts to become an act, he 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 becomes an activist and he becomes somebody who can lead crowds of people. the, the way the music takes on the more militaristic air through the snare drums. Um, there's the brilliant scene when he says to to the hospital and he points with his glove i mean if you haven't seen the film you won't know i'm talking about but anyone who has seen the film there's just a close-up of malcolm x's little gloved hand just sort of pointing and then everyone on command just sort of turns and marches uh so it's this kind of and then the music reaches this kind of like sort of ecstatically rousing moment uh which shows that Blanchard and Lee are absolutely hand in hand in terms of how to represent this character. How do you represent the magnitude and the might of this character? Uh, one of the, he's one of the defining figures of the 20th century. Love him or hate him, it's, it's a very very important figure in in American racial politics. And I think that the the fact that Lee doesn't in, he he obviously wasn't in a position to tell Blanchard right hang back with the music. No, just really really paint in big bold brash strokes with the with the score but that's not to say it's not intimate either there, there is also a beautiful theme for malcolm x's wife which sort of we interweaves its way throughout that's got a lovely kind of bluesy romanticism to it which is which is really really nice um there are some more disturbing textures later on involving various in inter, interpersonal betrayals where the strings become more i suppose astringent in a way but it's it, it it's all it's all rooted in clear building blocks there are clear motifs and themes applied to characters and situations and it sir uh, it serves the purpose of the movie brilliantly i can't believe this wasn't oscar nominated it's a really good mm. score
1: yeah it should have been it should have been definitely and i i i again this is this is a film i i really really must sit down and watch at some point did you know that malcolm x once visited a uh, small area near West Bromwich in the in the Midlands where I'm from.
2: I did not know that. I did not no, know you that. probably
1: wouldn't really. He, a place called Smedwick, which has a particularly strong BME community in in the UK, but it's it's basically just up the road from where I grew up. And he came there in like the 60s. And there's I think there's a monument to it there. <laughs> Jillian, oh, good. Believe me, yeah. no. Nobody goes to Smedick unless they have to. Well, apart he's from of, Malcolm, like, X. Those, <laughs> Malcolm X. Yeah, apart from Malcolm
2: X. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. Right, <laughs> that's yeah, amazing. Of all the places, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know,
1: of all the places in, in the in the UK he came to, but that probably speaks to the kind of man he was actually. Yeah. And that he was going and visiting like particularly strong black communities, so in the 60s. But yeah, fascinating. Um, I want the sequel to be Malcolm X in Smedick. That's that's the <laughs> film I want. Yeah. But uh, Anyway, get Terry Blanchard to <laughs> score it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So the final score then today is uh, one that you've chosen, Sean, which is uh, from a documentary called uh, A Tale of God's Will, A Requiem for Katrina. And this is by, again, scored by Terence Blanchard. But this is, and I don't know a lot about this, but I'm assuming this film is in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and serves as, I guess, a musical Way of dealing with that trauma.
2: Well, yeah, I suppose I should say that the um, the, the documentary is actually called when, "When the Levies Broke," a, a requiem in four acts. So th- this is a Spike Lee. Okay. Um, so that that's that's the that's the name of the documentary, which Terence Blanchard scored. He then spun off a separate studio album called A Tale of God's Will brackets a requiem for Katrina which which in which contained within it various bits of the music from the documentary I I, I looked this up as as we were preparing for this podcast I looked it up because I haven't seen this documentary but it, it it won very many many awards and the accompanying um sort of studio album won uh, apparently won a grammy for best large jazz ensemble album and uh, so, it's a very, 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 very personal project for both Lee and Blanchard. Blanchard is from New Orleans, uh, and so clearly, it's a very, very deeply felt project. So, this was a 2006 HBO documentary looking at the um, essentially how 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 was it that New Orleans became so badly affected by the damage from Hurricane Katrina, uh, particularly as the title implies, when when the le- the levees collapsed and uh, so it premiered in in 2006 on on hbo won um many many prizes played at the um at the 63rd venice film festival uh so it won three Emmys. Uh, so very 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 highly regarded one of um, Spike lee's most highly regarded um documentaries and clearly when you're dealing with a real-life a real, a real life tragedy that strikes right at the very heart of... Again, we, I want to go back to this word that you mentioned right at the start. I don't want to white-splain this. This is actually not what I want to do at all. I'm just filtering this through my interpretation of what I understand about the film. Um, and obviously, given the nature of what happened in real life as well, when you have a tragedy like Hurricane Katrina that strikes right at the heart of the, of the African-American community, the fact they were disproportionately affected in that tragedy clearly there is there is potential for real anguish and torment and anger but also healing as well so blanchard scored the documentary uh obviously feeling it very very personally because he was born in, in in new orleans um and then he spun it off into this uh, accompanying album a tale of god's will um and it's it's really it's really really beautiful there are several pieces of music that were um taken directly from the documentary itself he added several other bits and pieces of music it's available to listen to on youtube or, or you can um or you can uh, purchase it obviously it's really gorgeous and i think that what the what the music does is it plays out as this well series of suites basically like sort of eight to ten minute suites which traverse various emotions but the, i suppose the primary register would be there is a, there is a kind of haunted haunting anguished beauty to all of them which clearly speaks of the aftermath of such a horrendous natural disaster and also speaks of the you know the the fact that the, the the um u.s administration's response was so poor that in a way compounds the sense of tragedy and the um i mean the way that blanchard makes the trumpet sing i mean he is one of the greatest jazz artists in 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 the world and the amount of emotion that he is able to mine out of the trumpet—it's almost like the trumpet is speaking for everyone that was affected by this—and uh, it's it's really, really, really beautiful. And the um, there's there's a the use of like cascading piano and strings to it's almost like eddying around, like like the water that swept through the city itself is very, very evocative and very well done. And again, I I I I. I hadn't seen the documentary. I hadn't listened to this album before preparing for this recording, and I'm so glad that I did because I was like, "Wow!" It just it further cements Blanchard for me as one of the good, finest composers working at that at the moment. It's it's, yeah. it's really really gorgeous.
1: Yeah, I thought I thought the same actually, and I I think I think you're right in that he is he's somebody who isn't. Are in conversations enough about the the great modern American film composers, actually? And I mean, by, by necessity, this this podcast today has been heavily Blanchard sort of focused because Spike Lee clearly understands the you know the power of what he does and uses him on all kinds of different projects with different genres and different textures and things like this. And he wouldn't do that if he didn't think this man had a particular sound. And I think he does. I think I think he he has a particular stylistic approach that is unique to him and it's one I haven't heard in a lot of other composers that blends like uh, as we've said all of these you know these styles from jazz to this sweeping melody and, and and you know I think that it's that it's apparent the more you listen to his stuff in 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 a, in a contained time frame the more apparent it becomes that he does have a real voice and I think if this podcast has done one thing, it might be getting people to listen to more of his music in isolation even outside of the films because i think he's i think he's a real talent and i i don't know how many people often remember that
2: yeah it's it's classic case with film music isn't it that that film music often gets overlooked routinely anyway, and I suppose in this instance um with um, a tale of gods will, what we're talking about is 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 a studio album that, that contains bits of music that, that stemmed with another project. And I should point out so that there is the, the tracks that were drawn from the documentary directly are The Water, Levies, Wading Through and Funeral Dirge and just looking up a bit of it more information about about the personal nature of the project. So apparently Terence Blanchard's mother Wilhelmina lost her home in Pontchartrain Park but fortunately she survived apparently he also drew on his own experiences of Hurricane Betsy flo- flooding the Lower Ninth Ward in 1965 um, so there's two tracks called um, uh, Ghost of Betsy Underwater," the Water which are basically intended as kind of testament to that yeah so it's clearly might be the most deeply felt project that he that he's done for Spike Lee and possibly the best I mean, all all of the scores we've talked about today that he's done for Spike Lee I think are fabulous Re- really really impressive and again it shows how how adaptable he is as a composer and also how adaptable Spike Lee is as a filmmaker I mean when, when a filmmaker is adaptable the composer will, will invariably go with them and the composer will, will morph their style and their approach while also maintaining that elusive sense of you know, consistency, there is always... A great composer will always have a kind of consistent through line. It's kind of hard to identify what it is, but you can hear it and think, oh, okay, this composer is adapted to the needs of this particular story, but I can still tell it's them based on what I've heard in in their previous work. And I think Terence Blanchard is, is, is an embodiment of that.
1: I agree, definitely. And, and I think it shows, by definition of his music and what he does, I think it shows the range of Spike Lee as well. I think it shows how... He can flip between different genres and different styles, and he's he, he's not always hundred percent successful in doing that. But I think he tries to mix it up, and I think these the films we've presented today, and there's more. You know, there are there are quite a lot of other films where he's, he's collaborated with Blanchard and other comp- and and you know a couple of other composers and stuff. But these are these are a bunch to go off, and I'm certainly going to go off and watch a lot of these, to be honest. The ones I haven't seen, um, so I can hear these scores again in context but hopefully people will have listened to it and, yeah, wanted to go off and explore Blanchard a bit more in Spike Lee. So hopefully job done, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, crazy. hopefully.
2: There, there is yeah. um, there is the other documentary, uh, which I am intending to seek out, which I haven't seen, which is also directed by Spike Lee and scored by Terence Blanchard, which is um, Four Little Girls from um, 1997, which was about the um, the... 16th Street uh, Baptist Church bombing in uh, Alabama in 1963, which is generally held up to be one of Spike Lee's um, greatest films. I haven't seen it, so I am going to go and seek that out. I might well go and seek out um, Blanchard's score for that as well because that the documentary itself was Oscar-nominated. So I've got... Um, I, I will go and... So adds to um my knowledge of of this really, really fine collaboration
1: yeah, good idea i know I've got plenty of homework as well, so that we, <laughs> we, yeah. know, we know what we're yeah. doing this weekend yeah. um so yeah, we'll be back soon then for uh, another episode on between the notes. We actually know what we're doing next week, I think for once. This time <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so, and it'll be something a little bit different in terms of style and tempo. But, uh, yeah, we it's been nice to talk through this with you, Sean. And even though I don't know all the films and know all the contexts, its uh, it feels a particularly good and important time to maybe check out some of the things that Spike Lee and his films are saying, definitely, with everything else going on around us. Also, yeah. I
2: suppose one thing to point out is that our, um, to our, our good friend um, Amon, Amon Warman who has contributed to this podcast, but also had the great pleasure of interviewing Spike Lee. So give a shout yeah. out to um give a shout out to, to him. His interview will be as as we record this, his interview will be live imminently if it's not live already. So well worth checking out.
1: Definitely. Amon's been on this podcast before, yeah, and um we, we did we did try and ask him to come on for this actually, but he just he's with speaking to Spike Lee and all these other things he was a bit snowed um, <laughs> which is it's, understandable. It's in
2: pri- priorities and all that yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think yeah. Spike Lee's slightly more important than yeah. us you know even though we <laughs>
1: so yeah definitely go out and check check that out guys because I'm looking forward to listening to that as well because I, I I suspect they'll have got on well to be honest and it'll be a good uh, it'll be a good interview to listen to so yeah until we're back uh, next week thanks for joining us for another episode and uh, remember everyone we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network And the music of Spike Lee is not all we're discussing uh, on the network, so we'll give you a taste of what else you might have missed uh, on We Made This in a minute. But uh, until then, we hope you enjoy the film music we've discussed. Enjoy the Spotify playlist if you get to listen to it. We would say stay safe and well until we see you next time discussing the music of film between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. Shipwrecked and comatose. A Red Dwarf podcast right, that you did when you when you saw yourself do it in the future. Right, before we talk about this, as soon as we are talking about travelling in time and meeting ourselves, I am a gay. I would definitely have sex with myself. <laughs> would you? Uh, as two heterosexual men... Would I have would sex you, with Colin? <laughs> would you? Well, would you have sex with yourself? Or- Free with this month's issue. But anyway, what are you guys thinking about this one?
2: I'm thinking, even if you're telling me that you're nodding, you're secretly like throwing those arms around, you know, shuffling your feet by your chairs, and a good old answer along to it. You can't not, not at all so.
1: No, I was doing, whereas with, uh, you know, rock tracks, you might be doing air guitar, I was doing air knob twisting, and that is not what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe we're we'll moving like that up and down. You really should yeah, have yeah.
1: thought that one through, shouldn't you?
2: One hand on a headphone. <laughs>
1: Uh, anyway it's great Orbital a f***ing great (laughs) one Collins Freudian slips aside yes (laughs) the movie palace let's talk a bit about the man himself then Alfred Hitchcock this is the first Hitchcock film uh, I'm doing on this podcast I think he's one of those directors that you know sooner or later he was going to come up um, with something like this what do you think if you could kind of summarise it it's so great about him i i think the main reason is he was like the first celebrity director he was the first director that people knew who he was they could put a face to the name and he had he had this persona check out all of these shows and more on the we made this podcast network Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at Sean022. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore Notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, You can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.